0: Welcome back.
1: Hello. Hope you all are well. How are you? Mm. (laughs)
0: Uh, Well,
1: the reason I sound as sad as I do probably is, if you haven't been following, Indian election results came out. Uh, This is, we are recording on Saturday the 25th of May, and the results came out on Thursday, and they were... Awful, far, far beyond anything that I could have imagined, even my worst fears have been exceeded. Um, The right-wing incumbent government, uh, quasi-fascistic, I don't even know if it's quasi-anymore. The BJP led by Modi have not just won again, they've effectively increased their majority. Um... They've f- huge vote share, forty one percent vote share, huge majority in parliament. Basically, they can do whatever they want to. They can change the constitution. They can, yeah. So uh, it's not a good time to be either liberal or left wing and Indian.
0: Yeah.
1: Or a minority in Indian.
0: Or a minority in Indian. Yeah, um, we started the podcast. A year, year and a half after uh, after the Indian elections that brought Modi to power yeah. in 2014. And then our the, the kind of politics of the podcast, I think, for the next year were around... A lot of it was around Brexit and Trump, around those particular democratic yeah. processes. Um, and Modi has come up, and Modi's government specifically has come up a number of times. We talked about demonetization... Um, we've also talked about, uh, maps and cartography and education in India. We've talked about, um, healthcare, um, but we haven't ever done an Indian election episode because it hasn't yet come up. we talked, I, you know, I I think I said the other day they were kind of on a seesaw because Indian elections happen and then we, we go a year and a half and then American elections happen. And. Of the last couple cycles now this is the state of things for us yeah um it's from afar of course because i'm geographically distant but i'm also emotionally distant obviously india and the subcontinent more generally are have have been kind of key aspect of my education and my research and so of course i feel yeah. um I feel a connection to it, and of course, many of my friends and colleagues are from India, so it is a. It's horrible for me, but it isn't as it isn't it isn't horrible for me in the way that it is for you, and it isn't horrible for me in the way that it will be a year and a half from now when we're doing another episode on Trump's re-election. And given what's happened this week in India, and given also what's happened this week in Europe, and other parts of the world. um, I don't think that that is unlikely.
1: No. Um, And I guess part of what we are trying to do in this episode, there there are a number of things we could do and some of which we will do, uh, but we, we want to do as best as we can, given the mental state we are in at the moment, to, to try to understand quite what happened in India, what happened in terms of this election, what has happened to the left in India uh, and maybe do a kind of cross-national trump uh comparison in terms of what it means for the various ways in which the nation states have either transformed or not transformed uh, and and how might one critically analyze the phenomenon of the, the far-right that has a democratic mandate. Mm-hmm. How can we analyze this without uh, either minimizing the huge levels of pain and suffering that it will cause to lots and lots of people, or on the other hand, not... Lapsing into a kind of uncritical adulation of the nation state as it was before this takeover of the far right. Yeah, right. That that's what we're sort of loosely trying to do uh, in in this episode.
0: Yeah, there's something. I mean, I think methodologically we're we're dealing with a time question, thinking about the past, thinking about the contemporary moment, and then thinking about the future and where the the nation states. Of which we are members sit in how we conceptualize them and and how we think about them in terms of of time and history. Um, So, do I think we should? So, we've talked about Modi, we've talked about the BJP. You've definitely given some background. I think one of the nice things about our organic podcast is it's grown very slowly. So I think we probably have some listeners who haven't actually listened yeah. to some of our older episodes on uh, Indian on the BJP. I think maybe if we give a, a bit of background um, to Modi, to the BJP, to the, the f- framework of yeah. the elections in this particular campaign, um, and some of that, it yeah. might help to contextualize for people who may not, May not be as familiar with India as as we are.
1: Sure. Do you, do you want to start? I think
0: maybe you should probably.
1: Um. Okay. So, um, and of course, this is a narrative, and there are lots of ways in which this narrative can be challenged. Uh. And and if I say anything that you feel is needs contextualizing or needs more nuance, then just interrupt. Um. I guess one one of the things that characterizes the development of the indian nation state since independence in 47 is a kind of centrist verging at times between center right and center left uh political hegemony uh ruled by the the congress party the indian national congress which was one of the key figures in in the fight for liberation fight for independence and then post independence becomes the sort of almost default party of government for close to 50 years mm-hmm. in in more or less close to 50 years there were patches here and there when when opposition parties won but generally speaking that's the the tradition it's the it's uh what we can describe as sort of nehruvian india nehru being the first prime minister of independent india it's it's a a, a sit, set up where uh, you have a, a belief in a secular supposedly secular supposedly non-communal non castist uh, government which believes in the the possibilities of a planned economy so there were five year plans in a, in uh, in a system sort of borrowed from a Soviet style planned economy. You, there is a, a commonality uh, or narrative of commonality rather, where all the various different parts of India with all the different languages, different customs, different foods, different religions, so on can sort of come together, uh, in, in order to create this, uh, this India of which we are all part. Um, so it was from the very beginning a kind of combination of uh, at times benign at times less benign social engineering that interpolates all of all of us into sort of citizens of the nation and nationals of the, of, the, of the state um, along with a, a belief in government-funded nationalized industry, nationalized services, that kind of thing. Uh, the first big, sort of nationwide really, the first big challenge to this um, this mode of governing, this mode of looking at India as, as, as and considering what India could be. I would date it to the early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, 92 being a particular uh, particularly important here. We've done an when, episode
0: on on this year, yeah. 1992, uh,
1: when uh, the Babri Masjid, the mosque, which uh, supposedly was built by the Mughal Emperor Baba, uh is in in a town called Ayodhya in northern India, which is also supposedly the birthplace of Ram, who is an Indian uh, a Hindu deity demigod yeah he wasn't he wasn't real he didn't, live. he didn't live but but particularly orthodox hindus believe that he did he, he did and he was born there uh and 92 marked uh the moment when in an entirely organized way the political forces that are now in power uh destroyed them demolished the mosque uh that la- that piece of land has been contested since then uh, the demolishing of the mosque resulted in nationwide riots. Uh, there have been periodic riots and acts of genocide in various states since. Uh, and the years since, from ninety-two to, to today, has seen a more or less uniform, again a couple of blips here and there, but a general, generally uniform trend towards the uh, the decimation of Congress as a as a national force political force mm-hmm. and the rise and rise and rise of the the, the Hindu nationalist movement uh, The word word to describe them is Hindutva which literally Hinduness uh, There are multiple different parties multiple different organizations that come under this uh, this umbrella uh, sometimes uh, sometimes referred to as the Jansang Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the most prominent political party uh, in, in this movement is the BJP which is the head of this, this alliance that is in power now have be, have been in power f- uh, for the last five years as well NDA, the National Democratic Alliance uh, and they will, I mean s- some of them will say so explicitly some of them will not but it is uh uh, a hideously toxic combination of straight down the line neoliberal, uh, co- pro corporate economics with a particularly virulent form of Islamophobia, a particularly militant, muscular approach to relations with Pakistan, for example, uh, stoking fears about Muslim takeover of India, uh, and uh, a more or less explicit demand f- to to change India from an officially secular state to a Hindu state, a Hindu nation. Hindu Rashtra is the word they use. Uh, this form of Hinduism is not just Islamophobic; the, it of course is. It is also suspicious of other religious minorities. It is deeply casteist, so it believes in putting the the Dalits, the lower class, the lower caste in their, in their place. Uh, and it is, uh works on a similar kind of right-wing nostalgia that the Trump MAGA movement does, right? So this is, uh, they're going back to a fictional time when Hindus were, upper-caste Hindus were in power, were in the transcendence in India, and uh, that was a good time, and we need to go back to that time.
0: There's a purity element as well. There's. Yeah. Um, there were explicit that Hindu nationalism emerged as one of many forms of nationalism during the late colonial period sure. the, late, the late empire yes. so it, it's um, the the philosophical basis for it goes back to yeah. the, really the early 20th century yeah. um, and kind of the turn of the century yeah. and it emerges as a critique of the Congress Party yes. at the time which be- yes. which became of course the dominant party in negotiations in the last couple yeah. decades of the empire
1: but and, and, and I guess this is one of the one of the points of contention that we, we, we need to establish here which is the national narrative is that from the late 19th century colonial period to the to the 1990s it was more or less a fringe movement right mm-hmm. that's the national narrative
0: yeah uh, oh. and it's it's not
1: though I is mean it? it's not I mean it, it is in the sense of winning elections or not winning elections
0: but so if and you think about yeah. I mean if you use that, that same criteria yeah. the Muslim League which yeah. eventually becomes the other key player in 1947 in terms yeah. of partition also wasn't winning yeah. elections yeah. and so the Muslim League at the same time ha- in terms of its positioning yeah. in relation to the Congress Absolutely. party and the and the British colonial government yeah. sat in a similar position in terms of their yeah. power yeah they weren't winning elections no. until the no. end as well yeah. and there's an interesting I mean one of one of the other stories as well the national kind of narratives is that it was a Hindu nationalist who assassinated Gandhi yes um, and that is a that is a, a key story yeah. and in, and in fact that story has, has been reappropriated by Hindu nationalists and and you know used for certain political ends now um it's so, it's so not a hidden no Hindu nationalists are,
1: are quite openly celebrating the assassin from god say as a savior as a patriot uh, and gandhi is the traitor for partitioning the country yeah no so i guess my point was it's not so much that i i i, I wasn't arguing that Hindu nationalism has been a fringe movement throughout history. I'm just saying that I think particular forms of liberal, secular ideas about India, the nation, positions it as a fringe movement.
0: No, and so that's what I mean. The Muslim League as well, you know, because it's Hindu nationalist uh, parties and figures were and have been sidelined by the narrative. But using that same story, you know, yeah. they they weren't winning elections. They yeah. didn't, they weren't represented in government. They sat outside yeah. of official, yeah, kind of governance structures. Yeah. The Muslim League was as well. And yeah. then in 1947, the Muslim League has a is has an enormous amount of power. Yeah. And I think the Hindu nationalists always had yeah. a, similarly had an enormous amount yes. of power.
1: Absolutely, and not just it, but. If in that way absolutely but also because the lines between the congress and the internationalists have always been blurry mm-hmm. right so there, there are significant forces within the congress who espouse positions not that different from this amorphous internationalist political movement Sadar Patel being, a, being one obvious example who's sort mm-hmm. of the number two in congress uh, after Nehru in terms and certainly in the government he, he becomes India's first time secretary um, and there you know, his legacy is a legacy that is fought over, people people who support him argue that it's unfair to treat him as a Hindu nationalist and vice versa. But the this narrative of a secular Congress has always hidden the very prominent strains of Hindu nationalist thought that run through it. Mm-hmm. And in it is one of the many ways in which you could make a case, and I think that that's sort of the case we're trying to make here, is that Modi's, and Modi's brand of Hindu nationalism doesn't necessarily represent an aberration yeah. to the concept of India, or to the trajectory of India. Yeah. Uh, and and there is, there is something particularly uncritical in the way the particularly liberal... Interpretations of history, uh, and of um, I don't mean to single him out, but uh, an obvious uh, person who sort of an academic who represents this view, I think, is the historian Ramchandra Guha, mm-hmm. who f- wrote a book, India before India after Gandhi and Gandhi before India,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, two books, and India after Gandhi is a is a perfect example of this, which argues for the importance, not necessarily unfairly, I, I don't, I don't mean, not know whether he's completely wrong in this, but arguing for this, the primacy and the supremacy of this vision of Nehruv in India, which combines uh, a, a belief in, in sort of planned economy versus uh, a way in which everybody can be interpolated into, into the, the, the grand nation state. Uh, where it doesn't matter what your religion is, it doesn't matter what your caste is, and all of those things. And I guess part of why Modi is who he is, and he is where he is now, is for far too long, we have uncritically accepted that definition of India, that uh, that definition of India as a reality,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which... Would certainly not be shared by people who live on the margins, whether they are lower caste, whether they're tribal, indigenous tribal populations, whether they live close to the borders in, in Kashmir or in the northeast. There is a lot of real material oppression that is erased in this adulation of Nehruvian India.
0: Yeah, well, it's what's really interesting as well as you, it, Modi's the kind of cult of personality around modi actually mobilizes some of these some yeah. of these tropes as well yeah. the fact that he there's a social mobility aspect to his story key to his story is that he was the tea seller the chaiwala and his you know his father had a, a tea stand and he you know the sort of rags to riches story gets mobilized which is very much a part of the Congress narrative yeah. that that your caste and your class can't you know they they don't impede you anymore from yeah. from you know achieving some sort of yeah. kind of economic okay. autonomy or economic growth or whatever it is and so the the story itself is using tropes from an older Nubian model
1: so good. No, no no that's yeah. it
0: but the but the the um as you say if if you start to unpack some of the the narratives there's more of an interweaving of modi's bjp and Nehru's congress rhetoric
1: and this it seems partly because i know the situation more here but it seems and perhaps this is my own biases coming in but this seems particularly interesting to me if you if you follow what what is happening or what has happened more specifically in the state of West Bengal, which is the state I'm from, the state I grew up in. Now West Bengal has had, at least on the face of it, a very different political trajectory because for at least half of the period, slightly more than half, but not much more, half of the period of Congress domination in uh in this in in the central government West Bengal was ruled by the Left Front, which is a coalition of the various communist parties, uh, for 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 about 34 years. Uh, in fact, exactly 34 years. Um, and given West Bengal has had this particularly long and strong left left tradition, today this same West Bengal, which for 34 years voted. For consistently voted left the left vote has dwindled to seven percent it's not just that the left hasn't won a single constituency in West Bengal the left hasn't come second in a single constituency in West Bengal in the last elections Uh, the BJP went from having two seats to having 17 17 out of 42 at one point it was looking like BJP might be the single largest party in West Bengal Uh, West Bengal assembly elections, so the, the local state government if you like Elections are coming up in two years time, and it's a pretty safe bet that thing, as things stand that, that those elections might lead to a BGP government in, in, in West Bengal, which would have been unthinkable for most commentators, even five years ago. Now, what is fascinating to me is how the various sections of the left activists and commentariat have responded precisely to this, this problem of the way in which what you've just articulated, that the 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 way in which Modi's and the cult of personality that Modi mobilizes utilizes particular tropes of Nehruvi in India. Because if you look at so much of the commentary on Twitter, on Facebook and so on, it has been about criticizing Modi for being an uneducated leader. Mm-hmm. Right? So the idea is that the particularly uncritical, particularly unself conscious, middle class, upper caste Bengali Hindu who believes himself or herself, let's face it, mostly himself to be particularly progressive, votes communist, is a, often is a communist party member and is not then criticizing Modi for his identity politics or his, his right wing uh, or his fascistic way of being. But is criticizing Modi for not not being educated, is not criticizing Modi's supporters for being hooligans and thuggish and violent, but criticizing them for not being Bengali, mm-hmm. right? A lot of the rhetoric has been, you know, I was I, I was there, I heard that they were only speaking Hindi, they're not Bengalis, and it's the the, the level of or the lack of political insight, the lack of critical political insight. In either of those arguments seems to me go that goes a long way towards explaining quite how sudden the shift has been in West Bengal politics because the left has often fairly sometimes unfairly been perceived as so out of touch and so classist and so casteist that people that that forget about being able to get the vote the left has not been able to identify these strains of internationalist thought that ran through not just mainstream congress politics but also also mainstream communist politics yeah it, it just wasn't able to identify the problem and because it couldn't identify the problem it never thought of finding solutions to it which meant that the left was able to secure its vote for as long as it was a viable political force. As soon as it stopped being a viable vo- political force, it's not just that the vote the vote decimated, but the vote the vote wholesale shifted from from the left to the far right.
0: Yeah, which is it, and to kind of think about in terms of like practicalities, in, yeah. and in the United States we have we have a similar, there's a similar kind of discourse. It's around elitism. Yeah. Right. Um, The left is elite. Yeah. And Trump's supporters aren't elite. They're they're stupid. Yeah. They're uneducated. They're ignorant. um, When in fact, you know, a lot of Trump supporters aren't. A lot of Trump supporters are white women who have college degrees and professional jobs. Yeah. And there's a a kind of, um, which, which begs the question, really... Was it the aspects of, of the Democratic Party or Obama's campaign that coincide with, connect with, are similar to some of the aspects of Trump's campaign? You know, what it what is it? And a lot of it has to do with identity. Yeah. It has and it's it's a it's both a national identity and a smaller scale identity. And if that identity is is connected in part to Fear, fear of people who are poorer than you and who will try and undermine your own wealth or position, fear of people who are historically underrepresented in elite institutions taking your place in those institutions, fear of outsiders taking your jobs, you know, whatever that is, there's a a kind of liberal fear of things like affirmative action, and there's a conservative fear of. Things like uh, economic immigration, you know, th- in scare quotes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and ultimately, if the BJP is more successful than the leftists in speaking to that fear, it doesn't really matter which party yeah. does it. It's
1: it, it. reminds me a little bit. Was it was it basket of deplorables? Yeah, the phrase. Yeah, the deplorables, and, th- and that 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 encapsulates this, right? Yeah, where the when the the mainstream left, whether it's the Democratic Party and, and the Communist Party in India, and I'm not saying those two occupy the same position on, in, in the ideological spectrum, they obviously don't, but they went through these particular moments or these particular modes of discourse. They fit a particular narrative of elitism. Now, that's not to say Modi isn't elite. Of course Modi's elite. He's spending huge amounts of money uh, raised from his corporate cronies on obs- obscene personal wealth in terms of uh, spending hundreds of thousands of rupees on clothes and jackets and coats and stuff. So it, And you could make the same case about Trump and Farage. Yeah, yeah the, or, gold, the, the gold, gold, the gold curtains Yeah, Yeah, yeah all of that. Um, but I think uh, the the reason why I think it matters more is... It's not so much that the left today is elite and out of touch. That's that's too easy an explanation. It's not that that's not there aren't elements of truth in there. It's it's more a sense of what the left wing vision of this of society and nation is and who has historically been allowed in that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um before we started i played you a video yeah. of um we'll we'll include the the link in the description it's uh, I mean essentially you'd call it a propaganda video right it's a public yeah. service propaganda video uh of a song i believe the song and the video were both commissioned specifically to go out on state tv so this is uh the the epitome of Nehruvian in India, the the kind of nation we were describing, uh, it's uh, dates from eighties. I remember it as a child. It would be broadcast on on state state television. Uh, the song, uh, the the words of the song "Mile Su Banega which translates as "Your tune and my tune together will form our tune." And the video depicts people from the entire reach of India, right, from geographically from all the different parts of India and all the different languages singing the same thing again, uh, culminating in a sort of national anthem, national colors, national flag. A kind of vision of this, we are all in it together, this is Indian, we are all Indian, whatever our religion, caste, language backgrounds are. And it, what's fascinating is how quaint it seems today because this is so far from the kind of nationalism that India espouses today. Um, what did you... Did you have thoughts about the video?
0: Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, the... the I think what we're kind of... We're dancing around a concept here because you and I are so f- familiar with it. Yeah. Um, but that is the nation. Yeah. And what's happening... W- and what has what is always sort of happening given that we live in a nation state system
1: yeah.
0: is a contestation over what the nation is yeah um and who gets to be a part of it yeah. and the um the values of of the nation and a lot yeah. of that is wrapped up in identity and emotion yeah um and the, the it's it's fascinating because you told me to watch it to the end yeah and then I looked I looked at it and it said it's 6 minutes yeah. and 8 seconds long. And I was like we're we're going to watch this to the end. Okay. And it was really important that we watched yeah. to the end because yeah. the the story of of you've called it multiculturalism, which is also a word that the the British government has used to talk about yeah. um, this particular value. In the US we call it diversity. Yeah. Um which of course you know is a semi-official term and it is it's performed in a very particular way um and it's fascinating because it uses the you know very clear and identifiable markers of diversity so differences in dress um differences in kind of uh, I mean you sort of think of it in in kind of physical characteristics, so diversity in terms of skin color. Um, there's clearly both women and men are represented in the video. The women's dress in particular is quite distinctive, but all the thing right that when it seeks singing, the men are wearing turbans. You know, it's a, it's a it's making use of visual very clear visual yeah. cues of of diversity. Yeah sticking them alongside one another in order to to demonstrate difference but a very particular kind of safe difference yeah. difference that can be celebrated yeah and mobilized essentially but then at the end what you have yeah. is children yeah dressed up in and this is quite um it, it feels quite indian to me as well because of the the kind of the nationalist archive that I work yeah, with, as yeah, well, yeah. kind of pre nineteen forty seven, a nationalist form of education, yeah. um, where kids are put into uniforms. You know, there's a sort of a quality element yeah. to it, and they come together to create a flag. Yeah, kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, there's it's aerial photography that yeah. that they do, yeah. and. Um, And then they they make the Indian flag together, and as soon as that begins, the music changes to sort of nationalistic, patriotic um, version of the national anthem. Yeah, with horns. Yeah, and
1: this is all really familiar to me. It's very nostalgic because it reminds me of the kind of the kind of India that I knew as a child, or or what I thought was India as as a child. And they are you know we you use the words multiculturalism we use the words diversity both of those are, are clearly applicable India India's sort of motto at the time was sort of unity and diversity right that's the that's the phrase that kept kept being used again and again and again uh of course there's something quite sort of in terms of vocabulary there's something quite fascistic in mm-hmm. in terms of the way these various lives are being brought together to 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 form a totalitarian whole, right? You, yeah. you you are all you will all be part of this nation state and it is through music and videos like this that that you get co-opted into the, the, the project of, of the nation state. Um, on one level the, the version of nationalism that we have today is, is diametrically opposite to that. Right? Apparently on on, on the superficial level. Um, the version of nationalism we have in India today isn't unity and diversity. It's get, let's get rid of diversity as, as much as possible. Let's kick the minorities out, force them to convert to Hinduism. the uh, Lower caste people will know their place and it will all be in the service of a particular religious nationalism, right, a Hindu nationalism. But of course, in this, in this trajectory of a transformation of nationhood, from one type of inclusive nationalism to another type of exclusive nationalism is, in this reading, I'm, I'm revealing huge amounts of my privilege because there are people who weren't included in that mm-hmm. inclusive form of nationalism who continue not to be included, right? The, if it is true that Modi's government represents a fascistic turn in Indian democracy it is also true that Indian democracy has been experienced by many, many people as fascistic long before Modi, Right? from, from, from as long as we've had an independent India. There are people who live in the margins, there are people who, who are lower caste, there are people who are, belong to other religions, who don't have class privilege, uh, there are tribal populations who have experienced the nation-state as uniquely oppressive and fascistic in a way that transcends political parties and political movements. Yeah. And I guess the more I think, and, you know, we are still within a couple of days of the election results coming out, I don't think any of us have really processed it. But what seems to me one of the crucial questions that we have to come to terms with, we have to find an answer to, is how do we acknowledge the continuing nature of fascistic oppression that has always been present in the nation state, whether it's India or America, and at the same time recognize the real material change that Modi and Trump represent. Yeah, right. That that seems to me to be to to be a question that deserves demands an urgent answer. Right? How do we recognize the violence that is inherent and implicit? In the kind of nation-building mon- video montage that we were just talking about, while recognizing that there is a difference when that violence gets gets made
0: explicit. Yeah, yeah. Because the United yeah. States—I mean, in, in the U.S., a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of black activists yeah. have rightly said, you know, look at our history. Yeah. American history is is fundamentally one of institutionalized slavery. Yeah. Once institutionalized. Slavery was finally outlawed. Um, a new form of oppression was yeah. put in place in many southern states, called the, you know the Jim Crow laws, segregation. Yeah. Um, state sanctioned and enforced segregation yeah. um, that you know of course is overturned in 1965 yeah. after many many decades of uh, of activism um, and hard work. And then a couple of decades in which. There's a real concerted effort on the part of a lot of different groups of people yeah. to create a state that's less fascistic and less kind of um, driven by white supremacist yeah. agendas. And the 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 transition to the Trump administration and to some of the the kind of movements and, and individuals and organizations that that his administration has sort of allowed um, certainly kind of the, the rise of white nationalist governments in local kind of elections um, has it's different and it's not different mm-hmm. and the the reading of history is very important, the use of of and mobilization of uh, revisionist and um, I would argue more accurate histories that that challenge the nation state are really important. But at the same time, there is something happening now. Yes. There is something happening now that we need to address. Falling back on this has always been America yeah. is not enough. No. This has always been India is not no. enough.
1: And and that's 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 precisely the problem, right? Which is how do you... I was about to say quantify. Quantify is not the right word. How do you accurately contextualize the shift? Because you're completely right. It's not enough to say that Modi and Trump don't represent a shift. Because they clearly do. Something has changed. Yeah. But what is that something? In how do we... account for and analyze that shift while recognizing the 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 fact that the ingredients that go towards that shift were always there. Right? The seeds of this this fascistic turn were there in the kind of nationalist narrative that we espoused in, in American India. And it unless we can identify those trends, I'm not sure we'll be able to effectively target the shift because the shift comes through the ballot box. right? That That's the, yeah. you know, and we, there are many, many ways to explain away election results, right? One can explain them through, uh, uh, through, Corruption, financial corruption, and this is true. You know, there there are lots and lots of places in India where money is handed over. You know, vote for this party and you get this much money. Uh, Fear, vote for this party, otherwise I will beat you up and kill you. Um, Media manipulation, lying, external influences, Russia hacking, all of these things are true. All of these things can be used to explain how explain away particular election results that we don't like the problem and and perhaps there is a difference here between america and india because trump didn't get a popular mandate the popular vote didn't go with trump so more people voted against trump than voted for him it's not that bjp got a popular mandate 41 is the is the vote share which is a a big number for a multi-party democracy, right? Yeah. America is still mostly a two-party democracy. India hasn't been a two-party democracy for some time. India is a multi-party democracy. So in a multi-party democracy, one party getting 41% of the vote share is a huge figure. And it seems to me this this started with the last elections and it's carried on since. The liberal and left end of the political spectrum in India is still unable to face up to the fact that a majority of the Indian population wants Modi and un- and a majority of the Indian population wants Modi in a way that can't be explained away. Yeah. Right? You could just about make a case, I, I, I remember not believing this at the time. But you could just about make a case that five years ago the indian population had swallowed the development line of modi's policies right you know we're going to bring in foreign investment we're going to bring in development jobs all of those things you could just about make a case that people had swallowed the development line but not the communal politics line you can't make that case anymore
0: Mm -mm.
1: it is And most of most of Modi's fans don't do this because they can't. You cannot identify a single promise that Modi has kept in the five years that he was in power. We've spoken about demonetization before on our on our podcast where the Modi government overnight said money isn't money anymore, leading to actual people dying. Like you know, people literally died because of demonetization. Forgetting everything else. Demonetization on its own is enough for any government to lose lose power. On its own, no question. So the fact that given the government's record of for the last five years, such an overwhelming proportion of Indians voted for Modi again, it seems to me that the only way we can explain it is to say, is to admit, it's a big admission to make, is to admit that for a large section of upper caste Hindus, they are prepared to go through any amount of inconvenience, any amount of trouble, in order to win the prize that they really want, which is a Hindu nation, where minorities have either been reconverted to Hinduism, or banished, and an in India, where the lower castes know their place. Yeah. Right, now, unless we can, we can admit that, that for a large proportion, if not a majority of, of the Indian electorate, that they see this as a good thing. They see a war with Pakistan which might destroy Pakistan as a good thing. They see Muslims in India as a threat. They see a lower caste and farmer resistance as a threat. They want a world where the hierarchies with the upper caste Hindu at the top as a good thing. Unless you recognize that, unless you recognize the force of belief that says, I don't care that you have made me poorer. I don't care that my life is harder. These are sacrifices worth paying for achieving the greatness of the nation, the greatness of the Hindu nation.
0: How do you fight that? Yeah, it's similar in the United States. And there is a as you say, there's many ways of explaining Trump's victory. Yeah. and it's it wasn't the development story. it was the economy story. It was yeah. the jobs story, right? There's yeah. a, the one of my kind of like favorite moments of from a, a Trump uh, debate yeah. was when he said, When he was asked about his economic plan, and he said, "You already know my economic plan. It's jobs," (laughs) and then he just kept repeating the word "jobs" over and over and over again. You know, a lot of people were unemployed and needed work, Mm -hmm. um, and needed work of a particular type, and so that was the story. You know that that is is the story that is still told. You know, um, employment adequate employment that isn't just about making money and being able to feed yourself but employment that makes you feel some sort of satisfaction or have some sort of connection to the other people that you work with right this yeah. is the sort of story that gets yeah. told but I and I'll, you know there are a lot of like, Americans that are that are, are saying
1: yeah.
0: that's not what happened Yeah, that's not what happened there is a decent amount of the population a certain number of people that, and this is key people that people that you might like, people that you are related to, people that you went to school with, people that you grew up with, people that you respect um, and enjoy hanging out with, who genuinely believe that the United States should be primarily a nation for the descendants of white settlers from Europe. And that is as you say, a really painful admission for a number of liberal white Americans. Yeah. But the question, is, the question too is, you know, what do you do with that? Because one of the things that has happened is a lot of people who do recognize that that's what's happened. And yeah. so in, the, in the UK as well, a lot of people do recognize that that's what mobilizes some of, some of the Brexit vote. Um, and people who do recognize it then say, well, yes, fundamentally what's what's going on here is racism the response you get from the people that you're talking about is but I'm not racist not all of us are racist
1: and the then the the third response if you like or the response on top of that is whether or not they're racist is beside the point they voted and we need to yeah honor the vote we need to respect the vote um and this is said, I've, I've said it before, there's sort of like that so much of the debate seems to be people shouting the same thing again and again at each other in a way that I find really unhelpful because I don't know if either side is right wrong, right? So in the context of Brexit, you go, one side goes, we voted, there was a referendum, we need to respect the results of the referendum. And, you know, if the Remain side won, then you wouldn't be arguing this anymore, would you? Like, yeah, probably. Like, you know, if I'm honest with myself, if in the 2016 Brexit referendum, the Remain side won, would I want the Leave side to shut up? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I have a certain amount of sympathy with that argument. There's another side of the argument that goes well this is clearly racist and what we don't have to respect the results of a vote if it's racist like yeah it is racist and neither side gets to the answer about what do we do about it right so if we use brexit as an example if there was a second referendum tomorrow would i be happy yes would i vote to remain yes would I be happy if the Remain side won? Absolutely. But so much of that of the 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 people's vote campaign, who the, the people who are asking for a second referendum, act as if that's that then solves everything, and it absolutely doesn't. Right? This the 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 monster that has been let out over many many years. Some of this is to do with Brexit, but but much more before about demonizing immigration is not going away. Going back to the Indian, Indian context, we can have discussions about alliances and whether Congress needs to give up dynasty politics or not or whether the left needs to come up with a different strategy or not and all of those are important debates and all of those will need to be answered if we are going to kick the BJP out of the next elections. But unless we get to grips with the fact that the desirability of a Hindu nation is now a hegemonic view in India, it absolutely is the the view that the Indian state should continue to be secular, the view that Muslims are an equal citizen, are uh, should are are, uh, uh, are equal citizens in the eyes of the law, the view that. Lower caste Hindus are continually oppressed and violated every day. These these beliefs are minority beliefs, and unless we get to grips with the enormity of that truth, whether we manage to scrape through another election or not is really beside the point. Do you see what I mean? Like yeah. if if. if you, you, we started by saying how you you would not be surprised if Trump wins in twenty twenty. Neither would I. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if a Democrat wins. Yeah. But even if a Democrat does win, these people aren't going anywhere. Yeah. Right. The 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 forces that brought the Tea Party, the forces that basically destroyed the Republican Party as we knew it. Right. If you the 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 country club club Republicans. Yeah the Bushes party, that's gone, that party doesn't really exist anymore. And however we move forward, those of us who are, who are left-wing, left-leaning, however we want to define it, and believe in a kind of democracy as better than no democracy, how do we account for the fact that these racist, Islamophobic, castist views are hegemonic are shared by a huge majority of the population what do we do there how do we how do we progress how do we yeah, yeah. what do we do
0: because it, i mean given that we you know we've, we've identified and many other people have also identified this as being a, a core I mean, for us, a core part of the problem, I think for more kind of detached or nihilistic mm. observer, it's just a core piece of it. I mean, mm. the, the nation-state functions based on insider-outsider binaries. Yeah. It functions on uh, notions of membership, which are exclusive. Um, but ultimately, if racism is the one of the key issues yeah. the key problems then it becomes a the logical solution is to tackle racism to try and kind of dismantle but then the question but they're so entangled that like the institutions themselves are bound up in in each other
1: yeah this is what it comes down to are we are we better off living in a nation where the majority continues to pretend that the nation is equal and refuses to see the violence that is happening every day. Or are we better off living in a nation where the majority believes that the violence is justified? That that's basically what we what the choice is, right? Yeah. In the Indian context, in 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 the older Nehruvian version of India, the people who were in the centre, the people who weren't marginalised, could carry on believing that the 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 egalitarian nation-state that they had aspired to had been achieved, and were blind to the huge amounts of direct, indirect, structural, systemic violence that was all around them. Now, a majority of Indians believe that the violence that they see around them is justified, is desirable, yeah, because it is better for the nation um you could make a a, a similar case between sort of i don't know the difference between sort of clinton era democratic party and trump republican party right where this sort of um you know don't stop believing in tomorrow whatever the clinton line was the song was
0: yeah 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 um
1: Blair Britons, Blair's things can only get better in Britain. you know a, a belief that the nation is moving forward there's there's new hope, and we are all in all you know part of the same nation and we're all pulling in the same direction and things like racism and sexism and homophobia and and prejudice and violence are a thing of the past and of course, these moments were always experienced by many, many people as violent. But the people who experienced those moments as violent are so much more terrified now. Yeah. Right? Like Muslims in India today, like, who knows? I, can't, I mean, it's difficult for me to even imagine if I, the, given how scared I am of what's about to come, how scared must you be if you are a lower caste person, if you are a Muslim, if you you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the U S currently, um, currently reproductive rights as well as LGBT rights specifically around trans, trans healthcare, um, rights for trans people and employment, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, people are scared actively, and, you know, in a, in a way that they, they say they, they used to be scared, they're more scared now.
1: And what do you do If the tools of democracy are no longer yours to wield because so much of the majority seem at the very least to be beyond persuasion
0: yeah they're using the tools of democracy specifically for those ends
1: yes so where do you go then
0: I have no idea.
1: Once again, we've completely failed to solve a problem.
0: Yay! Um, Impact.
1: Hope you're well, as, as best as possible. Um, hope you can stay safe wherever you are. And we'll catch you next time.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick.
1: And I have been Anindya Richaudry.
0: You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz.
1: And me at Dr. Anindya R.
0: Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?